Would you open your Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 7? We will be reading and studying verses 14 through 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find Mark chapter 7 on page 843. What a privilege it is to open up God's Word yet again and hear His voice to us and what He desires of us. So Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, give attention to God's holy word. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we give thanks for your word this morning. We come from busy weeks and busy lives, and we confess that there are many concerns on our hearts today about many different things, some important, some not important. And Father, we ask that all of these things would fade away now in light of your word. By your word, you created the earth and the heavens. By your word, you rule over all things. And so, Father, we desire to take heed to your word. Father, we are a people who need your help. David prayed in Psalm 35. He asked you, he said, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me and fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and say to my soul, I am your salvation. And Father, this is what we desire this morning. We desire you to come to our aid. We pray, contend with those who contend against us. Father, we pray, fight against those who fight against us. We pray, oh, that you would take up your shield and buckler and you would rise for our help, that you would draw your spear and your javelin and you would pursue those who pursue us, and that you would speak the word of the gospel to our souls once again, saying, I am your salvation. 
Father, would you do this good work in our midst this morning, through your word, by your spirit. We pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen. When we look into our, our Bibles and when we carefully, carefully scan them from cover to cover, we can see that there is a, a great war waging within the pages of the Scriptures. This great war that we find within the pages of the, the Scriptures involves all of humanity. No one, is, no one is exempt from this war. There is no neutrality in this war. But this war that we find within the pages of the Scriptures is not a, a normal war. It's not like the war that we see in the news or in books that we read or movies that we watch. This war is not fundamentally fought with swords or spears or chariots. It's not fundamentally about land or places. Rather, the fundamental nature of this war lies within the interior of humanity. While fists are raised and weapons are brandished in this war, we can trace the, the source of this war always back to the corrupted heart of humanity. And ever since the sin of Adam in the garden, humanity has set himself against God, the creator of all things and all peoples. And when we carefully read the scriptures from cover to cover, we hear about this, this fundamental heart problem in the interior of mankind again and again and again. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Psalm 53 verses 1 through 3 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 29, verse 13. These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we can see from this, from this tasting of Scripture, at the, at the core of humanity's being, where our will and our desires, our affection, affections intersect, we have set ourselves against God. And because of this perpetual enmity that lies within the heart of humanity, because of this hostility towards God and His purposes, humanity is on this, this perpetual downward spiral. And we see this spiral within the Scriptures. It's a story filled with depression and death and darkness. And so when we read the scriptures, we, we come to this fact. The story of humanity is, is bleak. It's dire. There is no human invention or solution that can solve the condition of man's heart or stop this downward spiral of death. But we meet good news in the scriptures as well. We meet in the pages of the scriptures a God who graciously intervenes into this bleak and dark and depressing story. 
And we meet this God in all parts of this story. When we, when we work through this story, we get small tastes of what this God will, will do for humanity. We get a small taste when God meets with Adam and Eve after their sin, and, and he promises that a seed will come and will smash the head of that serpent. We get a taste of it when, when God graciously intervenes and saves his, his people from the clutches of Pharaoh and slavery. We get a taste of it in the giving of the law of Moses, God's righteous and good precepts for his people. We get a taste of it when we read the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They talk about this great coming day of the Lord when all things will be set right. But all these stories and prophecies function like appetizers. They prepare us for the great and climactic intervention. And this is exactly what we find in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a story of, of sudden appearance. Jesus suddenly appears in Mark. There he is, baptized in the River Jordan by John. And, and then Jesus suddenly starts preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled and the, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus suddenly starts healing people and casting out demons. And Mark, through this rapid pace, signals to us that in the appearance of Jesus and these sudden activities, the great and final intervention is afoot. And it's here when we examine Jesus' ministry of intervention that we, that we notice that Jesus goes about his work of intervention in a very odd way. He shows up to Israel and he doesn't call men and women to take up swords or shields or spears. Rather, he calls men and women to take up what? Faith and repentance. He calls them. He says, repent and believe. Jesus comes to, to his men, and again and again we hear from his voice these words. He says, follow me. Come after me. And we see in this intervention that Jesus desires the recalibration of the human being from the inside out, from the heart out. And Jesus works and he labors in the Gospel of Mark so that his people would be transformed into his very likeness with soft and pliable hearts. And Jesus fulfills a specific salvific role in the great war of the human heart. Moses wrote about a coming prophet who would teach the people of God the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 18 says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Israel needs, humanity needs a prophet who can speak the words of God. And Isaiah wrote of a, a coming teacher who could reach into the hearts of humans and actually change their hearts with his teaching. Isaiah writes in chapter 30, verses 20 and 21 of his great book, he says, Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. As Isaiah speaks of what's going to happen because of this great teaching ministry. In chapter 32 of his prophecy, he says this, Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those, hear, the ears of those who hear will give attention, and the heart of the hasty will understand and know. This teacher will actually be able to teach and reach into the hearts of humans and change them. 
And the Lord Jesus comes in the Gospel of Mark and he aptly and he ably sums up the great hopes and prophecies when he describes his own saving mission. He says this in chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is revealing that he is indeed the great physician, the one with the ability, the one with the authority, the one with the concern to heal the hearts of humanity. And when we look into our text this morning, this is the very ministry we see that Jesus is carrying out in the midst of Israel. And Jesus performs his ministry as the great physician in two distinct phases. And we can break up our sermon into two parts this morning. The first part is this. Jesus gives the proper diagnosis of what's going on with humanity. And the second part of the sermon will be this. Jesus applies the proper remedy that humans need. And so we can begin this morning by looking at the diagnosis. What diagnosis does Jesus give? A simple truth about doctors is this. A doctor is only as good as his ability to diagnose. A doctor may have the the greatest labs at his disposal. He might have the greatest nurses in his hospital. He might have the greatest technology and medicine at his fingertips. He might have many degrees from prestigious universities and medical schools hanging upon his walls. But if he doesn't have the wisdom and discernment to diagnose none of these things, Universities or technology or nurses will prove helpful, beneficial for the patient. So in chapter 7, a sharp disagreement has occurred between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And the religious leaders came to Jesus and they came accusing Jesus of circumventing and overruling the holiness rules of God. To the Pharisees and the scribes, it seems like Jesus is, is leading a ministry of lawlessness. And they questioned Jesus saying this, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus, why are you content with defilement? And the religious leaders, we see last Sunday, they believed that they had the right prescriptions for Israel, the right medicine, their tradition of the elders, their rules, their their laws. And they believed if Israel would just follow their medicine, all would be well for the people of God. They could live their lives in peace and wholeness before God if they just followed the tradition of the elders. And while indeed these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, were well trained in the scriptures, while they had received authority to to teach within the land, while these men had clout and even many of them had riches, these men had one great problem. They could not discern, they could not rightly diagnose what was wrong with humanity, what was wrong with Israel. It's interesting, Matthew records the same scene in his gospel, but in Matthew's record, we hear Jesus give a a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says this about these men in chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus says, Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind both will fall into a pit. And Jesus' logic is straightforward. If these men, if the scribes and Pharisees are dull in heart, if these men are hypocrites, if they have left behind the word of God, if they have in their deceit overturned the word of God and led a people astray, 
What will happen when these, these people actually lead a people and disciple a people, when they open up the Word of God and, and, and think that they're going to teach a people? Well, the answer is disaster. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You will most surely find a people that are characterized by the same things as the scribes and the Pharisees, a people of hardness of heart, a people who are marked by hypocrisy and disobedience and all the other things. And we can find another scathing rebuke of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 15. And Jesus says here, speaking to the Pharisees, You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So we see this principle working in Jesus' ministry. Bad teaching will lead to bad people. And so Jesus, in our text this morning, is wholly discontent with the teaching and the leading of the scribes. And so he calls together a crowd around him. And Jesus calls together the crowd so that they might get a true glimpse of their hearts, that they might get the true diagnosis, that they might truly know what's going on inside of their hearts. And so Jesus speaks to them in verse 14, and he says this, Hear me, all of you, and understand. He says, you need to give attention to what I am about to say. You need to hear this message. And as we move into verse 15, we see that Jesus' diagnosis comes in two parts. In the first part of Jesus' diagnosis, he debunks the diagnosis of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says this in verse 15. Look there with me. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. What is Jesus saying here? What is he doing? Well, Jesus is rebuking the tradition of the elders. He's saying, washing your hands or not washing your hands is not going to make any difference before God. We can find that there are larger ramifications to Jesus' words, and Mark spells them out for us in verse 19. Mark gives us this editorial comment. He says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. In effect, what Mark is saying is that, is that Jesus is teaching what we eat, what we put into our mouths, whether that be bacon or, or shrimp, is not the fundamental problem with humanity. Dietary rules and restrictions cannot fix the warring and rebellious heart of man. And Jesus explains why in verse 18. He explains why the Pharisees get it wrong. Even more, he explains the weakness of the administration of the old covenant in the food laws. He says this, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? What Jesus is saying is that food simply goes into your mouth, down into your stomach, it nourishes you for a time, and then there are leftovers, and those leftovers then go into the the toilet. And while the food goes into the body and nourishes the body, the food does not touch the heart. The food doesn't actually change or reorient the inclinations, the affections, the desires of who we actually are. And this brings us to the second part of Jesus' diagnosis. In verse 15, Jesus pinpoints the problem of humanity. He says this, But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So we're clear, defilement does not come from external sources like dirty hands or certain foods. Rather, the things that cause defilement come out of a person. Defilement, Jesus teaches, proceeds from the inside of who we are. 
And here we need to press on Jesus a bit and, and dig into his logic. What is Jesus teaching us here? How does this work? Well, Jesus clarifies in verses 20 and 21. He says this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And we need to carefully follow Jesus' logic here. What is it that really displeases God? What is it that ruptures this relationship between God and his creatures? Well, the answer is sin. And sin is evidence in concrete actions like Jesus lists, murder and theft and lying and sexual immorality. Sin is found in certain attitudes like anger and pride and conceit. Sin operates in desires like lust and coveting and stinginess. And all that Jesus lists in verses 20 and 21, we are clear, displease God and, and breaks the law of God. This is what brings defilement. We have to press on Jesus more. Where, Jesus, do these actions, where, Jesus, do these attitudes and these desires come from? What is the ultimate cause? What is the ultimate source of defilement? And Jesus narrows in pointedly. He says, out of the heart of man. And Jesus points, the problem with fallen humanity is the heart. We have to remember here that the, that the heart is the centrality of our person. It's where our affections, our wills, our, our core reasoning of who we are takes place. It is there in that fundamental part of who we are, where our desires are, that we are deformed and, and broken and rebellious. And so when we look out at Israel in the Gospel of Mark, we see their deformity to the law of God. We, we see sins all over the place, and we can ask why. Well, in Jesus' points, they have wicked hearts. Their hearts are far from God and out of shape. And so we can now understand why Jesus took umbrage at the religious leaders and their teachings. Because they misdiagnosed the people of God. And because they misdiagnosed the people of God, these men, these scribes, these Pharisees were committing blatant malpractice, literally killing the people of God. So the question is for ourselves this morning is, what do we do with Jesus' diagnosis? What do we do with Jesus' words this morning? And Jesus' words provide us with two important applications. The first application is this. Our, our text reveals that we are a people who need the right doctor. We don't need a doctor who's going to tell us what we want to hear. We don't need a doctor who's going to scratch and itch behind our ears the way we, we like it. But we need a doctor what's, who's going to come to us and actually tell us what's going on in our souls. We need a doctor who can actually look into our hearts, look, look past the facade and look into us and say, this, I see this in you. This is what's wrong. This is what's killing you. We need a doctor who can diagnose and the good news is that what we see Jesus doing in Mark chapter 7, Jesus continues to do to this very day. In the book of Revelation, John sees the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he describes this, this marvelous vision of Jesus, and it overwhelms John. And he is, he is searching for words to describe what Jesus is, is like in his resurrected and ascended state. And when John comes to describing Jesus' eyes, he says this. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
What John means by this is that Jesus' gaze can penetrate into our very being. Jesus' vision is not distracted by any facade or gimmicks, but he can actually look into the heart of a person. And so when we look and read at the book of Revelation, we move from chapter 1 to Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. We hear Jesus saying this, this same thing again and again to the churches. He says to them, I know I know, I know, I know. And Jesus knows his people. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He he knows their physical circumstances. He knows that certain of his churches are experiencing persecution and they're struggling. He knows the, the actions of the churches and he even knows what's going on in their hearts. Jesus says to one particular church, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so our great need then is to be a people who are put under the searching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have need to again and again make contact with the word of Christ that pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It is imperative for our faith to to flourish that we grow in the knowledge of, of our hearts and what's going on in our hearts. The mighty tree that grows up tall has has deep roots. And it's the same with the Christian. The Christian who grows up in maturity and shows grace and kindness and righteousness is a Christian who's also grown down in the knowledge of who they are in their sin. And Jesus is the only one who can provide this ministry to us. He's the only one that can give us this avenue into our hearts to to show us what actually is going on, who can pull back the cloak and say, I see this in you. I know what's going on. Now, to our modern ears, this has a very sadistic ring to it. Why would I want to come again and again to the Word of God and get beat up by it? Why would I want to come to the preaching of the word and the ministry of Jesus Christ and hear what's wrong with me again and again and again? I want to hear something positive. I want to hear something refreshing. I want to hear something heartwarming. But here we have to realize that the diagnosis that we receive from Jesus every time we come to his word, every time we hear the word preached, is a ministry born out of love and concern for the people of God. Just think about Mark chapter 7. If Jesus didn't love the crowds that day, if he didn't love his disciples that day, he would not have spoken this parable to them. He would have not spoke of their hearts. He would have just let them be in their sins. And it's the same with us. Jesus says to us, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So every time we come to the word and, and our sin is exposed, we're actually experiencing the present ministry of Jesus. We're actually experiencing his love and his grace and his kindness to us because he's exposing what's wrong with us, what will ultimately kill us. We can compare this to a man or a woman who has beaten cancer. What does that person do after they beat cancer? A lot of danger of that cancer returning, they they regularly and routinely return to the doctor for examination. In Christ, we stand in the same need as that that former cancer patient. We need to return again and again to our great doctor who who can diagnose our hearts and see if there's cancer growing up inside of us. And there's a second application from Jesus' diagnosis. It's this. We must operate with the logic of Jesus. When we deal with our sin, we must be careful not to follow the logic of the Pharisees. 
And there's something tempting and alluring about the logic of the Pharisees. They, they preach, and we see it in their doctrine in Mark chapter 7. Defilement comes from the outside. And why is this so alluring? Why is this so tempting? Because this type of logic ultimately removes culpability. If defilement comes from the outside, like, like food or, or dirty hands, then it doesn't come from me. It's alluring because we get to blame our sinfulness on other things, other people, or our circumstances. The logic of the Pharisees is like the logic of Adam in the garden. After he sinned and God drew near to him, what did he say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That's the logic of the Pharisees. But we must operate with the sound logic of the Lord Jesus. He says to us, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. James chapter 4 speaks in a similar way, and James clarifies Jesus' words. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why are you fighting? Why are there disturbances in your fellowship? He says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And Jesus' logic is powerful. We can truly say that our circumstances, our environment, our, our natural temperaments all contribute to sin. We're more likely to sin when we haven't slept well or when we're stressed. But Jesus' logic doesn't let us stop with these outward things. Jesus doesn't let us just say, I'm just tired, that's why I did this. I'm just stressed, that's why I did this. I'm just Irish, that's why I did this. Jesus' logic doesn't let us off the hook. He won't let us blame our sinful deeds, our twisted desires on someone else or something else. Rather, when we operate by Jesus' logic, he forces us to honesty. These deeds, these thoughts, these desires actually reveal who I fundamentally am. This is me. I have a heart that isn't right with God. I have a heart that, isn't, that is far from God. I have a heart that is at enmity with God. And so when we grapple with Mark chapter 7 and Jesus' words, we find that Jesus' words are sobering because our actions reveal who we actually are. What Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 7, it's like he's picking up the mirror of God's word and he shows us who we truly are. But when we continue to wrestle with Jesus' doctrine of the heart, we find that there is a, a disturbing element to what Jesus is saying. The religion of the scribes and the Pharisees was mechanical and pragmatic. If defilement comes from the outside, what is the solution to your case? What is the solution to your defilement? Well, the solution is to eliminate those outside sources. Wash your hands. Don't eat these certain foods. And then you're not going to have this defilement problem. But Jesus' doctrine of the heart removes this mechanical and pragmatic religion from us. He preaches the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus teaches the food you eat or the washing of your hands does not amount to any difference. The problem is your heart. And the radical solution that Jesus is driving us towards is that humans, men and women and children, need new hearts. And it's here that we find the disturbing element of Jesus' doctrine. And if we truly let these words settle in on us, they should disturb us. In fact, Jesus' doctrine should lead us to an appropriate biblical despair. I can change what I eat. I can change my diet. I can wash my hands. I can change my clothes. But how can I change my heart? 
How can I change who I fundamentally am? How can I cleanse my heart? How can I, how can I make a man's heart stop loving sin and, and love righteousness? How can I cause a man who runs after sin instead to run after God? How can I make a fallen creature at enmity with God, following the prince of the power of the air, treasure and then delight in the God of the scriptures and say, you are my all in all. I desire you more than anything else. And this text should cause us to despair. And there is an appropriate biblical despair, and we find it throughout the scriptures. And if you read biographies, you'll find it throughout Christian history. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The psalmist from Psalm 130, verse 3, is in despair. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We are to despair of ourselves. We are to despair of our own abilities, our own strength, our own wills. But we have to realize that this is not a total despair. It is not total darkness. And Jesus' words from Mark chapter 10, verse 27, must guide us this morning. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this, With man it is impossible. What Jesus is saying, you can't do it. There's no way you can get this done. But there's good news, Jesus says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And the book that we have before us this morning, the Gospel of Mark, is a book dedicated to the task of telling us about God's great saving work, what what man can't do and what God does. Here in the pages of Mark, we learn that Jesus is the anointed one with the Spirit, that Jesus is God's beloved Son, that, that Jesus casts out demons, that Jesus can heal the unclean. He speaks to the leper, I will be clean. Jesus can forgive sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. And so when we look into our own hearts this morning, we find good reason to despair, and we should despair. But when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we find good reason to hope, and we should hope. And so the call of the gospel this morning is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And we can do it this morning, even in Mark chapter 7, and find precious good news for our souls. Look at verses 17 and 18. And when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding. So not surprisingly, the disciples do not understand Jesus' parable about the human heart. And we as good readers have, have caught on to this pattern by now. We can remember the last time Jesus spoke in, in parables. We can go back to Mark chapter 4. Jesus spoke about the parable of the sower and what happened. These men didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. But the problem of these men is not just an intellectual problem. Jesus' teaching is just too complicated, just too heady for them. But their problem reaches down into their very hearts. We have to connect what's going on here in Mark chapter 7 to what happened when Jesus walked on the water. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. And Mark says this about the disciples. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Why can't these men understand? Because they have a a heart problem. And the irony in Mark's gospel is so thick here. Jesus is preaching about the heart, and the disciples cannot understand Jesus is preaching about the heart because of their own hearts. But Jesus in our text does something that we find, we, he does something that we find him doing again and again with his disciples. 
Just as Jesus in Mark chapter 4 gave his disciples the secret of the kingdom when they could not understand it by their own strength. Just when Jesus' disciples were doubting and anxious on the sea, despairing of their lives, Jesus called out to them and said, It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus comes again to these men and he explains his parable. He doesn't leave his men to their confusion. He doesn't leave them in their hardness of heart, but he continues to persevere with them and minister to them. And he explains exactly what this parable means. And what we see in these verses, verses 17 through 23, are just a small sign, just a a small taste of the redemptive work that Jesus has come to do for a people. Jesus has come to implement the new covenant to a bunch of stony and dull-hearted people. He has come to open the blind eyes of our hearts and give hearing to the deaf ears of our hearts. He has has come to radically break the attraction to sin and, and reorient us towards God. He has come so that we might, as a people, worship God with our whole being and say with the psalmist in Psalm 43, I will go to the altar of my God, to God my greatest joy. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. This is the ministry of Jesus, and this is what he's doing with his disciples. And so we need to bear out one point of practical application from this. And it's this. We must let this despair that we find in Mark chapter 7 be operative in our lives. We must be a people who operate with despair. We cannot dally around with the cures and the methods of the scribes and the Pharisees while they're pragmatic while they're mechanical, while they might give us some some great lists of things that we, we could do to fix our situations, we cannot waste time with the inventions and innovations of man. Because our sickness reaches to the heart, we need a cure that reaches to the heart. Even more, we need a physician who can can heal with skill and ability, a physician who can reach into our hearts and actually make us new and whole once again. This means that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we understand that when we sin, we must go to Christ for the forgiveness of each one of our sins. 1 John 1, verse 9 is is gloriously true. If If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we must also come to Jesus Christ for a second work. When the word of God, when the word of Christ reveals our hearts for what they truly are, when we see pride and lust and wicked desires in our hearts, when we see sin, what must we do? Well, we ask for forgiveness and then we do something else. We must make our way to the one physician granted with the power and the ability to cure our hearts. We must place ourselves in his ministry of care. And with this thoughts, we have good courage this morning, for we have a Savior who is stronger than sin. We have a Savior who can overcome the hardest of heart, and we must always come to Christ our Savior. We must encourage ourselves to come to Christ and remember who He is. For Jesus has ascended on high, and He sits at the right hand of the Father, and He has been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. He has been given a name that is above every name. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And we must remind ourselves, we must stock our mind with the the character of this Savior. Christ is the fullness of grace. Kindness after kindness was poured out from our Savior's hands. 
In Christ are supplies of inexhaustible strength. In him is matchless wisdom. And all of these things are freely available in the gospel if we would just come to him. One of my favorite books is called The Mortification of Sin, and it's written by John Owen. And it's a book all about killing sin. How do you do this great work? And he wrote this book. It was originally a bunch of lectures written to young university students, likely in their late teens. And throughout this book, he, he methodically, like a Puritan does, he leaves no stone unturned. He, he, he talks about the nature of sin and, and the spiritual work of killing it. And then he comes to the last chapter, would have been his last lecture, and he ends with this great high point. And this is what he says to encourage his own heart and the hearts of his hearers about killing sin. He says, Behold, the Lord Christ that has all fullness of grace in his heart and fullness of power in his hands, he is able to slay all his enemies. And he wants his hearers to know this. Whatever is in your hearts, whatever is going on inside of you, Jesus is sufficient, capable, and powerful enough to slay it. And Owen goes on, he says, there is sufficient provision in him for my relief and my assistance. He can take my drooping, my dying soul, and make me more than a conqueror. That is Christ Jesus for the soul. And so the great application of the gospel is this. We must return again and again to our Savior. We return to him again and again to have our hearts exposed to see what's actually going on inside of us because he is the only one that can see what's actually going on in there. But then we must do a second work. We must come to him as our great physician who is dedicated to healing our hearts. Because it is in our coming to Christ, it is in our fellowship with his death and resurrection, it is by beholding and eyeing up his good character, his power, his might, his grace, his mercy, it is by exposing ourselves to his, his medical practice, it is by being near to the instruments that he uses in surgery, the preaching of the word and, and prayer and the sacraments that our hearts are renewed, that our desires are reoriented, that our cravings are finally killed. So Jesus, our great physician, draws near to us this morning, and he, and he preaches to us. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And if we get the gospel this morning, we'll be a people who draw near to Jesus again and again and again, because it's only in fellowship with Jesus that our sins can be killed and our hearts can be renewed, and we can worship God once again. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your good word. We need it. We need your word. We rejoice in the ministry of Jesus that he ministers for us even now, that he is at your right hand, that he is currently interceding for, you, for us, that our names are graven upon his hands, that he looks not away from us. And so, Father, we pray, heal our hearts. Make us new. Make us whole. We need your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.